Well, it is great to be up here again. It's been a long time. And uh, as most of you know, thank you. As most of you know, there's been a lot going on lately. Three trips to Russia, to the inmost interior of Russia. Oh, and it's great to be back home. We just recently adopted, for those who don't know, our daughter from Russia. Her name is Lana. And for all those who have asked, just a little update, she is doing well. Mommy and Daddy are tired, but she is doing well. How would I describe Lana? I think she has a, well, quite a strong motor or engine. She has a Ford F-350 <laughs> compacted into a little Ford Focus, you could say. She is a fighter, she is a survivor, and she has brought much joy and laughter to our home. Church, thank you for your incredible support and care of us that you've shown. The meals, the words of encouragement, the gifts, the prayers. I hope you understand this hasn't just been about two individuals, a couple adopting a child. This has been about a family adopting a child. And yes, you could say even a church. For honestly, I don't know how we could have done what we've done without the support of so many of you. So thank you. And we hope that many of you can meet her shortly. Not here today, but we're hoping in the weeks to come she will be here. And what a joy to introduce little Lana to you all. Let's open our Bible, shall we, to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Our text this morning is verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. The title, Walking in Unity. So let's open up and prepare our hearts now. And to do that, let's pray. Oh Lord, we are eager for you this morning to address us. We ask that you would focus our mind, that you would engage our hearts, For Father, we're in need of your word this morning. We're in need of your revelation. So we're here to say, we're listening. We're all ears this morning. So Lord, open our ears this morning. Open them wide. And open our hearts too to what you have to say. This morning we pray. Amen. Amen. Let us read. Let me read. May you read along in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Walk in unity. Church, 
here we are today in our series in Ephesians. It's been 66 verses, three chapters, and almost two pages in my Bible. And we have now come to the first exhortation, the first imperative, the first command found in this book. I don't know if that seems significant to you, but I can tell you as a parent, I've probably never said a whole three chapters about anything to my children without giving them a to-do, a command, or a specific action point. I'm hoping to change that. I wish I could tell you that my dialogue with my children, who I'm instructing, went something like this. Hey, son, I just want you to know that you are my prized possession. You are my joy. I praise God how he is working in and through you. How God is maturing you. How God is opening your heart to the gospel and even enabling you to get along with your siblings. Now, son, stop whacking your brother with a baseball bat. Again. You see what happens with me is it's, hey, son, verse 1. In verse 2, stop whacking your brother with a baseball bat. I call it efficiency, okay, in my communication. All right, let's get to the point. You see, that's not what Paul does. We can too easily miss the grace. We can too easily forget to give the evidence of Christ's prior working in our children's, or in a person's life. Or if they're not a Christian, give them their need for Christ's prior working in their life in order to obey. To give the hope and the reason why they can even obey in the first place. Church is grace. And this is what Paul is doing here in Ephesians. He has spent three entire chapters telling us what God has done for us. Three chapters telling us who we are in Christ. He is giving us hope. And from this hope, He is now about to give us instruction. Oh, I find that so helpful. I find that so instructive. So now, in verse 1 of chapter 4, He's about to give us the therefore. The very first exhortation or command that flows or springs forth from the hope that Paul has been talking about in the previous three chapters. And Paul sums it up this way. Church, walk worthy of your calling. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Verse 1. It's really the topic sentence of the rest of the book. And certainly the topic sentence for our passage today, verses 1 through 6. Walk worthy of your calling. Are any of you searching for your calling this morning? You have it right here in the text. If you've been chosen by God, if you've been adopted into His family, if you've been redeemed from sin, if you've been raised with Christ, if you've been reconciled to God, if what we've just read in chapters 1-3 through is true of you by faith, You've been called by God. And if you've been called by God, there is a calling on your life. I like how the King James Version puts it in chapter 4, verse 1 of Ephesians. We read, walk worthy of your vocation. 
of your calling, of your vocation. You may be in school right now. You may be in the middle of a career change right now. You may be unemployed. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ, you have a vocation. And if you're not a follower of Christ this morning, there is a future vocation awaiting you this morning. What is this vocation? What is this calling? It's to live a life that is congruent with, that conforms to your calling as a child of God. In other words, you've been saved, you have been forgiven, you have been reconciled to God and to one another, so live like it. Because you can. That is Paul's message, in a nutshell, and really what frames the next three chapters of Ephesians. And to express this connection between our calling and conduct, Paul uses a very key and prominent word here in Ephesians, right here in our text. Paul first introduced this word in chapter 2. He's going to use it again later on in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And we see it here. It's the word walk. Walk in a manner worthy. We're to walk out these glorious truths that we've been studying. It's walk. It's feet on the ground in the dirt and grit of our everyday lives. I, I, love, I love Paul's choice of words here. It's, I want you to walk worthy. N- not run, not sprint, not meander, but walk. What does that communicate? It, walking communicates an intentionality, doesn't it? Placing one foot in front of the other, day by day. It's called the Christian life. And it's the expectation, isn't it, that every child, unless physically handicapped, would walk someday. If your child is one and a half, certainly two years of age, and he or she is not walking, there's serious concern, isn't there? Yeah. Sometimes for first-time parents, that concern comes a lot more quickly. Hey, little Amy was walking at nine months. What's wrong with my little Johnny? It's been a year, and he's not walking. There's an expectation, right? That he would walk one day. And it's a genuine expectation of every Christian that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We're not all called to be sprinters. We're not all called to be endurance marathoners, at least of world-class proportion. But we will grow up knowing how to walk. And the manner in which we're to walk is found in verse 2 of our text. And really following. The manner in which we're to walk really informs, I believe, the burden and my burden this morning. Starting with point A. That we walk worthy? A. How would we walk? With humility, gentleness, and forbearance. Easier said than done, isn't it, church? Church to walk in such a way is difficult and it's costly. I find it interesting that Paul, in verse 1, uses this phraseology. He says, in identifying himself, a prisoner for the Lord. When launching into this section of imperatives, Paul could have, I guess, suppose, wielded his apostolic authority He's done it before, right? To assert his point. Yet his self-designation here is as a prisoner 
for the Lord. He seems to be making another point. He's saying, I too am under the same calling to live a life worthy for which I have been called. And he not so subtly hints at the challenges and the commitment of living out this call. Why? Because as Al mentioned last week, we live in a fallen world, a fallen world of sinners. Christ's kingdom has broken through. It's the already of chapters 1 through 3. It's what is true now of us in Christ. But Christ's kingdom is not yet. Thus the needs for chapters 4, 5, and 6, where we're at today. You see, we still live in a world of not yets, of sinners, starting with you, starting with me. And to my chagrin, I find this truth at times surprising and assaulting to my pride. There has been one day that I have dreamed about for a long time. It's a day we finally brought our adopted daughter home. That day, as many of you know, was Saturday, March 31st, about two weeks ago. But it didn't go quite as I had scripted in my head. After a long flight with Lana and my other daughter, Annika, from Moscow to Miami, I stepped off the plane with a sense of victory. I was standing tall. We had made it. We were home. Furthermore, I knew a crowd of friends and family were awaiting us at the arrival terminal. On numerous occasions, I had visualized, I had visualized walking through the gauntlet of people at Terminal E. As I saw our friends waving my hands in joy inexpressible. Oh, I had, I had lived that so many times this past year. But what I hadn't counted on was going through passport control and immigration first. <laughs> now, I mean, I knew we had to do it. I wasn't fully ignorant. I mean, but listen, I'm an American. I'm home, got my passport, and I knew that I had Lana's immigration paperwork. So I figured it would be pretty much a breeze. Well, when the officers asked me to stand in a certain line for all those who have an American passport and or a green card, I did it joyfully. But when the officer saw me in line and saw that I was holding a Russian passport for Lana, he abruptly asked me, where's her green card? I told him I didn't have one for Lana. And furthermore, I didn't know why I needed one. I had an immigration visa for my three-year-old. And I had all her paperwork. Well, his face crinkled, and he basically began reprimanding me, bordering on yelling at me. I felt assaulted. I felt insulted. And my pride welled up, church. And I made a sarcastic comment like, wow, welcome to America. (laughs) Well, he heard that. (laughs) About face came right back to me, and he was about six inches from my face. And he was giving me the right at act. And shamefully, I wasn't backing down. So here we are in a sea of Russians. Our whole plane was Russian. Here I am with my two precious daughters. And we're going at it. Our faces beat red. And I'm thinking, I cannot believe this is happening. I cannot believe this is happening. This is not what I visualized regarding my homecoming. Over and over. 
I was shocked at his attitude. I mean, it felt like a demonic attack. To be honest, but you know what? I was even more shocked than appalled at my prideful, sinful response. You see, I'm thinking, our adoption's final. I'm home. I've done the paperwork. I just didn't want to take it anymore. I didn't. And then, in God's sense of humor, <clears throat> the officer gruffed. So what do you do? What's your profession? <laughs> I did not see that. I did not see that one coming, church. That was not on the radar. I can't believe this is happening, okay? So I hemmed and hawed. Obviously, he couldn't perceive my profession. <laughs> from my attitude and conduct. I said, I'm a pastor. <laughs> then he said, I get, he goes, show me your pastor ID. <laughs> pastor ID? Okay, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really angry. Like, what's that have to do anything? Pastor ID? So, I give him my business card. Paul Visakimini Church. Church, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I have tarnished this church. But when I realized he wasn't interested in it, I took it right back and put it in my pocket. Oh, church. Woo! It's not how I visualized it. Well, after about 45 minutes sitting in the immigration room, I had plenty of time to cool down. Plenty of time to confess to God, to confess to my two daughters. And yes, I was there praying with them <laughs> in front of the immigration officer, telling them that daddy had sinned. But you know what? I can really say that when I walked out to Terminal E, I was forgiven. And I can say it was glorious. Only by God's grace to see so many of you there. But have you ever been there? Oh yes, we're adopted into Christ's family. We've been forgiven. We've been reconciled to God and to one another. In a sense, it's done. It's complete. The paperwork is finished. But you know what? There's still sin. There's still conflict and opposition to contend with, starting within our own hearts. I don't know if you see the irony of this book of Ephesians. Paul is telling us that we as Christians in Christ have been raised with Christ in the heavenlies. But do you know where Paul is writing this letter from? From prison. He's in a dark, dank, lowly, degrading Roman prison. He's in chains. You see, yes, chapters 1 through 3 are wealth in Christ, who we are, what he's done is all true. But to walk out these truths will not be easy in a fallen world. It requires humility. It requires gentleness. It requires patience. And it won't be easy. It won't be easy walking through passport control. And it won't be easy in the church. And I believe that is Paul's book. And that's what he's driving at. As we come to verse 3. Church without humility without a gentleness and a forbearance and a patience, that which I sorely lacked on that day in the airport, we will not be unified as a church. These are the very prerequisites to maintaining unity. And we're really going to develop that in the next point. 
Why is this unity so important? And how does the manner in which we walk out this calling relate to this call to unity? We're going to spend the bulk of our time on this next point. Okay? Walk worthy in humility. Walk worthy maintaining unity. Verse 3. In the next three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is going to talk about walking in love. He's going to talk about walking in light. He's going to talk about walking in wisdom. But notice, the very first thing he mentions, it's walking in unity. Why the primacy of unity? Why? Because it's unity. It's the reconciling of Jew and Gentile into one new humanity. One new creation, which forms the very heart of Paul's letter. It's through this unity, starting with us, starting with the church, that reveals what God is doing through Christ. Do you remember Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10? It really is a key verse for us, in the, I believe, this entire book. We read that God the Father's plan for the fullness of time is what? Quote, to unite all things in Him. That's Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. That is, all things are to be united and summed up under Christ's rule. And we, the church, are exhibit A of God's plan. So you want to know what God's doing around you right now? What are you up to, Lord? He is uniting all things under His His Son, Christ, under His rule, starting with us right here, the church. We are God's PowerPoint presentation to the world. We are the first fruits of what God is doing in the universe. And it's our unity as a church, our unity that shouts to the world, Christ reigns. But notice that this unity, this oneness, is created by the Spirit. We are called to maintain the unity of the Spirit, i.e. to maintain what the Spirit has created. The unity that we share at Palm Vista. Just look around. Palm Vista. Young. Not so young. Educated. Not so educated. American. Latin. Caribbean. Asian. Blue collar. White collar. Redneck. Big house, small house, richer, poor, Democrat, Republican, independent, Catholic background, Pentecostal background, Baptist background, Presbyterian background. Church, this is supernatural unity that speaks of the gospel. We cannot create this unity. Do you know what happens when we try on our own effort to create unity? We get uniformity, not unity. We get uniformity. When I say uniformity, I'm talking about conformity to principles, excuse me, conformity to practices rather than principles, rather to the gospel itself. Church, to all dress alike, to all talk alike and use the same lingo, or to choose a certain educational choice, is not the unity that we're talking about here. We can have all those things, and yet have 
a false unity. Uniformity rather than unity robs the gospel of its witness and robs the gospel of its power. You see, to be homogenous, that is, to be all alike, frankly, it's just not that impressive. And it's not really impressive either in the eyes of the world. In the eyes of the world, to be homogenous, to be all alike, just one more click, just one more club, just one more action committee, which dresses the same way, likes the same kind of music, or shares the same hobbies, or votes the same candidates. Friends, that's not the church God created. A biblical unity is a unity which breathes diversity, and yet is held together by the bond of peace, peace, the bond of peace, which is centered, centered upon the gospel. We're going to talk more about that next week in verses 7 and following. So church, yes, we can have people with different political persuasions. We can have people together that we fellowship with and worship with that have different views on the millennium, different views or different song preferences. We can have people that we join together with who have a different understanding of the nuances of church government. But throw in the fact that we're all sinners, it takes humility, a gentleness, and a patience to live together, to share life together with those who are different from us. But we, but we have been tasked with them. We have been given the task of maintaining unity. And we can, and we can because the Spirit has united us in Christ. But there's nothing casual about maintaining this unity. Look at the words carefully. Verse 3. Eager. Eager to maintain. Maintain what? The unity of the Spirit. You see, there's a readiness, an urgency to Paul's exhortation that we cannot miss. Oh, it's too easy to miss this and kind of just gloss it over. Okay, yeah, be eager, eager to maintain. Got it. No. I'm going to quote a commentator here, put on the overhead. It's from Peter O'Brien that I felt helpful. He says this about this verse 3. Paul's appeal is urgent and cannot be easily translated into English. The verb he uses has an element of haste, urgency, or even a sense of crises to it and has been rendered as yours is the initiative. Do it. Now. Do it now. Is that your attitude when it comes to a, maybe a fracture in unity in the church? Or just in a relationship? Maybe, maybe just an unhealthy distancing between you and another person, brother, or sister in Christ. And that distancing maybe has bred a little suspicion, or at least tempted you towards suspicion and distrust. Are you eager to maintain the unity? Eager to humbly, eager to proactively address the situation or the person if need be? Is that your attitude? Do it now. Or is it, I'll do it later. 
Oh, you know what? I'm just going to avoid that situation or that person all together. That's not an option, church. It's not an option. Are you eager to maintain the unity? Or are you in your relationships or in your conversations much more eager to express your opinion, to express your rightness in that situation, to express your judgment? Church, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is to be eager to humble ourselves, to take the low road for the sake of unity. And it's called humility. We read in Philippians 2.3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I believe here in this verse, in the following verse, Philippians 2, verse 4, we find humility defined as considering others' interests. Could we also add others' maybe thoughts and opinions? Even above your own. Oh, how desperately we need humility to live together. To quote Gary Thomas in his book, The Glorious Pursuit, and I want you to read this as well. Put it up on the screen there. He says this, The inner discipline of humility acts like a filter, saving us from the tyranny of grossly unrealistic expectations that everyone and everything should bend our way. Listen, our greatest fear should not be the tyranny of our government or any person. It's the tyranny of our own expectations and demands. To borrow wording again from Peter O'Brien, quote, humility is to bend every effort to maintain our oneness in the local congregation as well as our wider relationships with other believers. So I have this question for each one of us, including myself. Are we bending are we flexing? You may say, Corey, you don't know how I'm flexing. I'm on the ground. I'm doing the back bends, man. I got my feet on the ground. My palms are back behind me. I'm flexing. Some of you are saying, yeah, man, I'm like, I'm doing that yoga pretzel maneuver. I'm all bent out of shape, you know? Well, some of you, man, many of you are. This phrase, do with all humility, you are exemplifying that. And I just want to say thank you. May I add this? May God be wanting to limber you up even a little more? Perhaps he is through this passage this morning. This past week, my family and I visited Fairchild Tropical Gardens. As we were walking through the gardens, we saw this beautiful trellis that formed a totally shaded archway or canopy. When my daughter Annika saw it, she was captured by this visual and really exclaimed, Wow, that's what I want in my garden or my home someday. Well, I do love gardening and was curious to see what type of vine it was, so we went to check it out. But to my surprise, it it wasn't a vine at all. It was a series of Malay apple trees. I'd never heard of them, didn't know what they were. But it was a bunch of trees 
standing side by side, bent over an archway, bent over a series of PVC pipe, forming a shaded, beautiful canopy. You see, it wasn't a natural creeping vine. It was the work of a gardener to bend those trees and to grow those trees as such, to form a unified beauty and to capture our attention. Church, Christ bent his back to the whip. Christ bent his back to the cross upon which he died, that we may have and enjoy this precious unity as a church. You see, church, Christ is the trellis. He is the form upon which we bend. Side by side as a church, bending over, together, formed and shaped by God. Church, that is humility. And that is the church. And you know what? It's a beautiful thing. But to maintain this unity also takes, along with it, a gentleness. Or we could translate that word meekness. Meekness is really humility's twin. It's not a word we use much anymore, but it's a powerful word that we would do well to perhaps recapture. Christ beckons us with these words in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. You could translate that. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew Henry, in his wonderful little book called The Quest for Meekness, comments, I am to be a lamb in my own cause, but a lion in the cause of God. I read that and thought, what a description of meekness. What a description of Christ. See, the Bible calls Christ, right, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who became the slain lamb of God, laying down his life for us and for the glory of the Father. I am to be a lamb in my own cause, but a lion to the cause of God. But how often we reverse this. How often I am a lion to my own cause and a lamb to the cause of God. Church, that was me at passport control, okay? No gentleness, no meekness, and no thought of God's glory. Oh, and lastly, to maintain this unity takes a patience, a forbearance with one another in love. As you know, we've already mentioned, we here, we're all different. You know what? We also all work and change at different speeds or paces, don't we? There's been a, lately been around, there's been a fair amount of talk about change within our family of churches, Sovereign Grace Ministries. There's been a fair amount of talk about change in a local church, Palm Vista. So often when we recognize deficiencies, we want change now. And too often, we can demand it according to our internal and often unconscious timetable. 
You may not even know you have that timetable or deadline in your head. But you know when you reach it, don't you? Yeah, because you're angry. You're impatient. And you're not forbearing. Patience forbears. Not just institutionally. No, no it forbears individually as well. You see, we are called to bear with one another in our own personal weaknesses. And weaknesses aren't always sin. When you hear that, weaknesses are not always sin. We all have varying gifts. And we all have different degrees of gifting, don't we, within those gifts. Sometimes in the church, we are called to serve in areas that frankly aren't our strengths. You know what? You know it. And others feel it. As well. I do. Let's be honest, right? But are we as a church extending mercy? Are we extending a helping hand? To quote Dave Harvey, quote, Mercy says that my love, and may I add, my service to you, will not, will not be conditional on your change in this area of weakness. Oh, how important is this? having just planted a church? I don't know if you've noticed, but we've lost a lot of servants. We've lost a lot of ministry team leaders. You know what? We feel the sacrifice, don't we? We feel the pinch. We need to serve and forbear in the face of weakness. We perhaps have felt the loss of these individuals most keenly in our children's ministry, as Bentley announced. We felt it in the worship team and also our interpretation team as well. Please hear, I think each team leader, Nestor and Maite, along with Sabrina in children's ministry, Zeke with worship, Gustavo with interpretation, I believe they're doing a great job. And I know many of you are stepping up to the plate. Thank you. But at times, I'm just being honest, we can feel like we're limping a little bit. If we don't forbear, if we don't Tend to the limp. This limp can turn into a wound and it can fester and it can fracture our unity. But sometimes we're called not just to forbear with personal differences or weaknesses. We're to forbear in the face of yes, in the face of sin. We read in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Going on to verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So what does it look like to walk humbly, gently, and patiently in love towards one another? Not only in the face of differences, not only in the face of weaknesses, but in the face of of sin. Well, Watchman Nee of China, as told by Montgomery Boyce, tells this poignant story. Let me read it to you. It's about a brother in South China who had his rice field on a hill. During the growing season, he used a hand-worked water wheel to lift water from the irrigation stream that ran by the base of the hill to his field. His neighbor had two fields below his, and one night he made a hole in the dividing wall and drained out all the Christian's water to fill up his own two fields. 
the brother was distressed. But he laboriously pumped water up into his own field, only to have the act of stealing repeated three or four times. At last he consulted his Christian brothers. What shall I do, he asked. I have tried to be patient and not to retaliate. Isn't it right for me to confront him? The Christian prayed. And then one of them replied, If we only try to do the right thing, surely we are very poor Christians, he said. We have to do something more than what is right. The Christian farmer was impressed with the advice. So the next day he went out and first pumped water for the two fields below his. And then, after that, worked throughout the afternoon to fill his own field. From that day on, the water stayed in his field. And his neighbor was changed, transformed by the grace of God and the humility displayed. This sermon, this text, is not just about doing what is right. Got to maintain little relationships here, maintain unity, just do what's right. No, it's about doing something more than what is right. It's about doing that which is supernatural. It's about going the extra mile, extending mercy to maintain our spirit-created unity and to showcase to the world God's wisdom and power. This doesn't mean we can't voice disagreement here at Palm Vista. This doesn't mean we will never confront sin. It doesn't mean that we can never leave a church, or that we can never leave this church. You can. God never asks us to violate our biblically informed conscience or to maintain unity at all costs. No, our unity is to be based on a shared theology. Verses 4 through 6. We're not talking about unity here as the world often talks about it. Maybe you've heard the word or phrase ecumenicalism. This idea that let's find unity and common ground and where we don't have common ground, we'll just ditch the rest, okay? No, we don't ditch theology in the name of unity. It's our very theology that informs our unity. That's why Paul has been taking three chapters in Ephesians. He's doing theology. I think that's Paul's point in verses 4 through 6. So we walk worthy in humility, maintaining unity, and now see, remembering our shared identity, which is another way of saying remembering our shared theology. That is, who God is and who we are in Christ. Paul is quick to remind us in these verses that we all share the same identity, the same testimony, and the same family. Seven times he mentions one to get his point across loud and clear. Let's just read it. I'll read it. Verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Just as Paul started this text with our call, so he now ends in verse 5 right, with our call, injecting our call in our efforts to maintain unity, 
with hope that we can maintain this unity. Not hopefully, maybe, but with a certainty based not on ourselves, our own merits, but on what the Spirit is doing among us as a church. This hope that stems from our identity in Christ. You see, we belong to one body, and it's one Spirit, one Spirit who is uniting us together. We are in Christ, and we share one testimony, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're all together. We're different. But we're all the same in one sense, aren't we? We're all sinners who've been saved by grace through faith and now worshiping the one, the only one, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And we all belong to one family. We share one Father who is working out His plan to unite all things under His sovereign rule and will. You know what? The Father's plan will not be thwarted. There's our hope right there. There's our hope. His will to unite all things, starting with His church, under His rule, will not fail. Oh, I thank God for that. Church, it's this oneness. It's this unity where our power lies. Listen, we're not big, okay? But our power as a church, as Palm Vista Community Church, does not lie in our size, but lies in our unity. That is where our power is. Because of such gospel cohesion, this unity we share is supernatural. God has brought us into this church. In Christ Jesus, He has made Jew and Gentile one, one new man. It is He who has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And it's the same God who can break down any walls between you and another person and keep those walls down. Church, this is power. Church, this is our witness. And it's through our oneness, our unity, that the manifold wisdom of God is being known. known. To whom? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 3.10. To all the watching world. Last week marked the 18th anniversary to quote World Magazine of the start of one of history's most poignantly evil episodes. On April 7th, an ethnic people from the African country of Rwanda, called the Hutus, started the mass murder of another ethnic people in their country, called the Tutsis. This wasn't a genocide carried out through bombs or gas chambers, as heinous as that is. It was a genocide carried out through machetes. Neighbors killing neighbors in hand-to-hand combat. An estimated 800,000 Rwandans died. By the way, that's one in eight in their country died. Butchered to death. A few people, excuse me, such as Laura Henson, have chronicled the aftermath of this unspeakable massacre and what has taken place. She did it in her film called As We Forgive. It's a film about reconciliation in Rwanda between real Hutus and real Tutsis. What particularly caught my attention, though, is I heard the story again, and as I read of Lore's upcoming film, Mama Rwanda, was this. It wasn't just... It wasn't just. It wasn't just the forgiveness 
that had been verbalized. Oh, that's truly supernatural and to be celebrated. But it's one thing, isn't it? To say, I forgive. But it's another thing to say, I choose to live with a person who is your former enemy who murdered your own family. What caught my attention was the story, story of Rosario who now lives next door with the man who brutally murdered her sister. It's a story of one poor Rwandan mom who is starting an association of killers and survivors together and teaching them how to save 30 cents a week in a joint bank account that they will use to buy a piece of land together, to farm together, taking in the harvest together. Perpetrators and victims side by side, saving, laboring, giving, farming, taking in the harvest together. Can you conceive of that? What a picture. It's only a picture of what God can do in a person's heart. It's the work of the Spirit. And it's called the church. You see, God isn't just calling us to bury the hatchets, so to speak, with one another. He's calling us to live together, side by side. He's calling us to farm together. Why? For the sake of the harvest, the spiritual harvest, right here starting with South Florida. If God can reconcile Hutus and Tutsis, that they can live together as one people, the Rwandans, if God can reconcile Jew and Gentile and make them one new humanity with one shared identity, then we, church, right, can live together as the church and maintain and live out this supernatural unity. There's a story. There's a script of humility, of gentleness, of patience, of unity that God is writing here at Palm Vista. Let's not miss it. Let's press in at this critical time in our church's young history. I believe we're doing well. I don't believe we have any major factions here or unity is fractured. But let us, let us eagerly strive to maintain what God, through His Spirit, has created here. Friends, it is good. It's good. Let's walk worthy. Let's walk in unity.